Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. In the studio with me today is Dr. Laura. Good morning. Thanks for getting me out of bed this morning, Shane. You were just yawning. I was. And I called you out on it. You should have seen it, folks. It was, a, it was like one of those bear yawns. It just went on for minutes. <laughs> I'm yeah. excited for an hour of science. Yes. Thanks, we also have Dr. Susie in the studio. You may remember she was a guest a little while back. We asked her to come back and help us out today. Hey, Susie. Good morning. How's it going? It's going well. Are you, uh, did you have anything like special happening? Like Laura's had a big night out. but um... I had no big night out yesterday. I ran... An insane amount of kilometers training for a marathon. So I'm, you know, my legs are Ooh. still feeling it. I'm so happy I'm sitting. Ah. <laughs> really me, though. Don't be famous, Susie. <laughs> You're talking to me and Laura, and it's an insane amount of kilometers for us is what, 0.5? <laughs> Tops. Yeah. I, uh, it was over 20. I like casually ran a half marathon yesterday. And, oh then thought, and, and I came home and thought about it. I was like, this is insane. <laughs> yeah. When's the marathon? Uh, in October. Melbourne right. Marathon. Yeah. For everyone listening, get your signs up. I need support. <laughs> Well, wow. all right. Well, uh, you know, good on you. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great achievement. Um, I remember when I, you know, I got to get back in stuff like that. I, I just feel I hear stories like that. Nothing about you, Laura. I just feel a bit. No, nah, don't. Lazy. Please don't. Doesn't it shorten your lifespan? Well, I, I'm still going with the. You have a certain number of beats. Yeah. Don't use them all up. Yeah. I'm conserving Thanks. energy. I, I realise that's not based okay. on any science whatsoever. But I got a lot of beats up yesterday. So, <laughs> All good. Uh, folks, we're going to be talking about organ donors today and organ donations and all of that good stuff, which is a really important aspect of the show we've done over the years, actually. But today we have a clinician, we have a uh, member of a, a, a donor family and a recipient all going to be on the show. So that's going to be pretty cool. And we'll be talking about a lot of other things, but we have some news to start off with. Dr. Laura, do you want to get us going? There was a headline that grabbed me, and it actually was about shortened lifespan, um, which is why that was on my mind. And the, head, the sort of tagline of this study was, flies age faster after seeing death. But Whoa. this one that was actually science behind it. So it wasn't just a, you know, a, a line grab. So the study may sound pretty morbid, but the researchers didn't really want to go and find out what happened after flies saw other dead flies. But what they wanted to do was look to see if flies had heightened immunity, if they co-housed them, put them together with flies that had been intentionally um, given a pathogen. So, in fact, But what they actually found is that when they put flies together with sick flies, there was actually a dramatically reduced lifespan of the sort of, you know, the incubated healthy flies, if you like. So in this study... Shane's looking very sceptical. Well, there's, real this science here. there's real science here. I'd like to know what's causing it. You I know, know, right? I'm curious. That's what science. they did in the study. So yeah. real science plus biology published by researchers at the University of Michigan. They went on to find out what was going on in the brain that was, um, you know, behind this shortened lifespan. And so they used Drosophila, which is every, you know, biologist's favorite good old fruit fly. They have a reasonably short lifespan. Mm -hmm. And if you co-house, if you put together... Um, fruit flies with the corpses of other fruit flies for two days, dramatically reduced lifespan, 45 days if you're sort of, you know, together with some corpses. 
for two days, but 60 days is your, your general lifespan. And so what they did was they started to look at what areas of the brain you know, would light up or what neurons would be triggered or would there be any triggering? And spoiler, there is. And so they fluorescently tagged different neurons and they narrowed it down to this region of the brain, these ring neurons called R2 and R3. And they saw that these neurons were lighting up when they when these flies would witness trauma or witness corpses. Right. And also what they found is that these flies would dramatically reduce their body fat and other flies would actively avoid them. This is the flies that have seen death. So I don't know what's going on there. Depressed flies? Depressed flies. Maybe they, they're giving off some bad feng, feng shui. But the group of neurons that were lit up, they had to have expression of the serotonin receptor. Serotonin, you may know, it's a neurotransmitter. Mm that would try to activate, you know, during depression. And they also had to have expression of a protein called, called FOXO. And so what they could do was then start to manipulate it. So they could take flies that hadn't seen corpses, stimulate this region of um, these neurons, activate them, dramatically altered lifespan. And then they could take the flies that had seen corpses and delete that protein FOXO or delete off that receptor on those neurons for serotonin no change, no, you know, no reducing body fat, no avoidance by um, other flies and normal lifespan. So this is one of the first examples where you can actually fiddle with a protein in the brain and that alters lifespan. Wow. I thought that was absolutely incredible. I mean, I'm worried now that I watched the entire series of The Last of Us. I know, right? There are implications for all of this. Are we going to live shorter lifespan, Susie, because we watched it all? Because people joke, you know, like, oh, God, that's happened now. COVID, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I feel like I've aged 10 years. Well, maybe, maybe you have. Maybe you have. Maybe you have. So whether it's, you know, the trauma and activation of the neurons or whether that's from chronic stress that's induced by, mm. you know, seeing. I want to know if it would happen if they were sort of housed with a different species of fly. Hmm. Yeah, or a different species they, entirely, Yeah, like a spider Would they still else. care, like or humans. is it just seeing your own? <laughs> yeah, because I, I, always, I always come back to, okay, what is the evolutionary advantage of this happening? Like, there must yeah. be something, especially in, in insects, you know, where they evolve very quickly. So, you know, is, is this to make sure that flies don't hang around in an area where and breed where other flies have well, died? Funny you yeah. should mention breeding because they didn't find it in this study, but in another study, apparently if you witness sort of, you know, um, sort of a lot of corpses in insects, they reproduce a lot faster, hmm. which makes sense. It's like maybe get all the babies out because the apocalypse is coming. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. Watch this space, Watch no this doubt. Space. I mean, I do have a lot of friends who have babies now since COVID, you know, so maybe that's a sign for humankind. <laughs> I think that's because they were enclosed in small yeah. spaces and bored for a long time. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? You know, there's a lot of October babies. I always say it's the Christmas holiday spirit. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it just happens. Hang <laughs> on, October, November. No. September. No, September. Do your maths. Yeah. 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 Do the maths. I'm not good at maths. You know that. Susie, what you do you got for physics. news for us? <laughs> well, I'm not as interesting as that, but I'm just uh, following the news coming in for Oppenheimer, the new movie. Oh, yeah. You must have heard of that as a physicist. I've heard of it. I've heard of him. Yeah. And the movie. <laughs> good, good. That's a good start. Yeah, yeah, so there's a new movie coming out, and I think... Um, What's out? Well, it is out now, and people are watching it, and uh, the reviews are mostly positive, but apparently what is concerning is that it's sold as a almost historical movie, so quite, you know, close to history and his life, and uh, there's a lot of historical facts that are yet again ignored in mm -hmm. it, and so I think um, Peter Bradshaw's review in The Guardian already picked up on the fact that, you know, it's about dropping atomic bombs on Japan, mm -hmm. um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and um, there's absolutely no mention of 
basically Japanese people in the whole movie. Right. Wow. So they are completely absent in that. So, you know, you can kind of, like, the way that people explain this away is because they see it from Oppenheimer's perspective and field of view. Basically, so he, you know, in his brain space wanted to, you know, close his eyes to that fact that he's just killed a hell of a lot of people and made a lot of country uninhabitable. Mm. Um, so they, you know, they try to expand that away. But the other thing is also that um, they show this, this area where he built his research facility in the secret lab in Los Alamos as if it's uninhabited. And a lot of reviews pick that up that it's, you know, they just took uninhabited space and right. fields of emptiness and, and built yet. their little... And, and yet, yet. Yeah. that is not quite the truth. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah pe- people particularly who have um, Hispanic, you know, heritage in America go a bit rogue on this right now because there's obviously large amounts of Hispanic communities that lived there and um, were literally um, scared away from their land so it was taken from them forcefully. Their livestock was um, shot in the head, uh, mm. the ground bulldozed. And right. then a lot of the males actually, so the men of these communities, were made to work there and used to um, work with the beryllium they used. Oh, nice. Without yeah. protective that's, gear. That's good for you, that stuff. Yeah, that's yeah, really yeah. good for you. Yeah, yeah. I think there's even a disease that's called for it, like beryliosis or something. I don't yeah, remember. Yeah. And so, yeah, they, there's a, a lot of stories and a lot of reports from that um, from the time that, you know, Hispanic males were... Um, given no protective gear, whereas white men who worked there were, right. and then you know it had increased deaths, of course, from from diseases according to yeah. that. So it's yeah, it is very sad. But yet again, there's another movie which is you know insane amount of money put into the production of it, and there's so many historic facts that I ignored. Mm. And then you know we can we can go on about the fact that it is you know full of Oppenheimer and Einstein's appearances, who are two Jewish scientists, not played by Jewish actors. Right. German scientists, <laughs> not played by German actors. Uh, yeah. This is an endless yeah. round of mine forever. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting to me because, you know, like we were just saying before the show, mm. like it's been 70, almost 80 years um, since these events occurred. Yeah. And I don't think you detract from what was an extraordinary piece of history and, and, and science and, and so forth um, by giving the full, complete story. And the film's three hours. Yes. There's plenty of time in there. You, you know, like thought. a little bit of editing, you could chuck in a couple of scenes. Exactly. You know, just I think it wouldn't hurt. But. Um, it's it's a fascinating one for me because I've seen this story told many times mm. and it's always told the exact same way. I mean, maybe in more detail in this film, I haven't seen it yet. I hear it's a very good entertaining movie and I think when I go and see it, I'll see it from the point of view of an entertaining film partly about Oppenheimer. <laughs> um, but not, not uh, you've got to be careful not to watch these as historic sort of indications. Yeah, but that is what it happens, right? Yeah. Like people watch these movies yeah. and then they think they're historical, you know, prose on, on the yeah. life and yeah. death of, of Oppenheimer and whatever. And I, I just, I find this really concerning in a way because I yeah. feel like when there's such a, a, such a big profile movie with such a budget from Christopher Nolan made, you know, that there should be at least a few minutes spent on accuracy in that regard. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I know one scientist who said they preferred the Barbie film. It wasn't Laura. Maybe it was me. <laughs> Look, the Barbie film gets rave reviews. Just saying. Yeah, apparently, apparently yeah. very good. Uh, very good. Well, I think uh, it's well, it's just good for people to know to go, yeah, go and see. It. It's probably very entertaining, but just be mindful that it's not the complete story of of that particular piece of history. And you know, from my perspective, when I think about it, you know, physics gets a pretty rough ride in these films, and. And it's people, not physics. That's yeah. that's the problem. And physics has delivered some extraordinary, extraordinary results yeah. over the years. And you know, you've got to put it all together. It's, it's the science, all, right? Science yeah, is science. for good and yeah, for bad. Absolutely. 
Now, speaking of some uh, good and bad news, depending on who you are, actually, uh, there. So, dark matter. You know, we need dark matter out there in the universe because galaxies, um, believe it or not, spin uh, too fast. And with with what we can see in them, so there's got to be something else there, or it's possible we just don't understand gravity in the universe at all. The second one, they're not so sure about that. I think we're doing pretty well with our predictions uh, around the universe, but. The idea that most scientists are pushing for is trying to detect dark matter. And we actually talked to some of the researchers from um, that were doing uh, the July lectures in physics, which are still on um, just last week about this. And the, the real difficulty, of course, is detecting this stuff because we see its gravitational effects, but it doesn't interact in any other way with us, which is really problematic. So, you know. What does that mean? Well, you know, you, you, you have this evidence out there when you look at galaxies that they have dark matter in them and it changes the way in which they, they rotate or they spin. Some people think, actually, no, we don't understand the physics. We don't understand the physics. Now, that's where NGC, New General Catalogue, item 1277 comes into play. This is a very, very old galaxy. It's a, a relic galaxy. But guess what? No dark matter. They haven't been able to detect uh, any dark in the influence of dark matter out to a radius of about twenty thousand light years. So that's pretty big. That's insane. And if if there is any dark matter, it need it would be well below five percent, which is sort of getting close to the threshold of there isn't any there. Now, what this means, of course, is that if dark matter is not the issue. Um, and it's gravity we don't understand, we would see it in this galaxy. We would see that that was still happening and there'd be something going on. But in this particular galaxy that's being... um Look, it's being studied primarily by the University of um, Laguna and a whole lot of different people around the world at the moment. But basically what they're seeing is that when they look at the kinematics or the motion um, that they can detect in the galaxy by looking at the spectra of the light coming out, so you know things moving away from us versus things moving towards us have different colour changes, mm-hmm. then they can work out the speed of everything and, well, no need for dark matter in the calculations there, which says if we didn't understand the way things moved in the universe, which is what one of the other theories sort of postulates, we would have that lack of understanding in this galaxy too. But um, it's all good. It's kind of comforting, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of comforting. Science pans out. That uh, dark matter, which we can't find, um, is probably the likely candidate. <laughs> yeah, so um, but it's interesting. that this is, this is a big part of the way astrophysics and science works. It's about elimination, right? Yeah. So you keep doing further and further experiments and keep trying to say, is it this? No. Is it that? No. And you keep going until you corner it. And that's what the dark matter search is, is going to be about. Um, Those sorts of experiments blow my mind. I know, right? Yeah. You know, you're stuffing the lab, Laura. Yeah, for yeah, someone yeah, that works on tiny molecules. Kitty play uh, by comparison, isn't it? No. <laughs> <laughs> you're just dealing with the immune system. Simple. Simple stuff. I don't but at know. least very small. Very small. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, some interesting stuff there. Uh, so keep an eye out, folks. If you hear 1277, that's the galaxy of choice. Okay. Uh, apparently it has no dark matter. Um, we'll see. Further studies continue. Triple ah. In the studio with us now is Dr. Rohit De Costa. He is from Donate Life Victoria and is their spokesman. And also we have a family member of a former donor, organ donor, um, Rebecca Zapia. Welcome to the studio, Rebecca. Thank you. And Rohit, welcome to the studio. 
Thank you. It's good to have you both in. Now, this is uh, this is something I think uh, probably 25, 30 years ago, I started doing a little bit of promotion here or there on organ donation. donation. I think it was after it ended up on my driver's license or something like that. And I thought, how is this not a thing that's just across the board? Like it just, as a science person, it seemed really weird to me that it wasn't something that everyone was doing. Um, Rod, can you sort of speak to like your role there in Donate Victoria? I mean, what what is, what's the goal of the organisation? Yeah, the first thing is to really normalise organ donation. People uh, in the community know how important it is. And mm. you've talked about your driver's licence. It's a common myth now um, in uh, many states and territories in Australia that it's on your driver's yeah, license. In yeah. fact, it's only on your driver's license in South Australia. Right, yeah, yeah. I remember um, it being removed. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so that's uh, – but, but you can check. So you can go onto a, a website or through your Medicare app uh, and register very, very quickly. But yep. you can check on donatelife.gov.au um, to see whether you're on there. Mm. Um, all you need is your Medicare card. So that's the first thing to – Tell people to do, um, you know, jump on donatelife.gov.au and, yep. and with your Medicare card. But and and, and just on that, it's opt in, right? It's not opt out. It is an opt in system. Yep. So um, we we um, we know that when people have made that decision to register and talk to their families, their families are in no doubt as to what their decision would be. Yep. That uh, the vast majority of times, families who are always also asked when when some when a, when their loved one is dying in you know often very tragic circumstances mm-hmm. um, when families are asked and they know what their loved one would would have wanted they um, almost always go with that decision right yep and it donate life victoria i mean what is the sort of remit of the organization so so we're a uh, government um, funded organisation, and really, what we do is, uh, apart from promote um, how important organ and tissue donation is to people in the community, we also have uh, very important work in hospitals and um, the healthcare system as a whole to make sure that organ that systems supporting organ and tissue donation are as uh, streamlined as they can be. Yeah. Now you're an intensive care specialist at the Royal Melbourne. What what does that mean? What is are you the sort of person I don't want to encounter <laughs> as a as a citizen? Like a- absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The last <laughs> well. You know, there's a lot of intensive care does a lot of things. There's a lot of um, support we provide to people having elective operations yep. as well. So um, you know, and um, but but there is a proportion of our um, patients who um, suffer sudden, unexpected, mm. um, tragic uh, illnesses, which require a very high level of um, of or support, usually organ support like ventilation or kidney support or other things that mean that they need to be very, very closely um, watched and nursed yep. um, in, in this environment. Yeah. Right. Give us an idea of what parts of the human body we are currently utilising in the organ donor sense. Like I know we, we hear a lot about kidneys and livers and hearts and yep. I, I suppose to a lesser extent components of the eye, but how much of the body can we utilise? Um, we know that uh, one organ donor can save the lives of up to seven People and that's the the common or the organs that we commonly know that can be transplanted. But there's um, so much more that can be done to help others. So skin, for example, can save the life of a burns victim. Yep. Um, we know that bone can be used in multiple operations. So one uh, deceased donor can help 
50 or more people in wow. their in in bone operations that uh, that require t- uh, bone tissue. Um, there's cardiac valves, so not just the whole heart, which can help someone who needs a heart transplant, but also valve tissue that can, um, mm. you know, in everyday common operations that are performed. Yeah. And when, when you look at the science of these transplants, I mean, are there certain areas of the body where we are ahead of others? So are we like, you know, the science around the transplant with lenses from the eye is like sweet doing that great but with things like the kidneys that's a lot more tricky i mean is is the science sort of in the same place everywhere or is there vast differences because of the complexity of the organs there are differences in terms of um immunosuppression the amount of immunosuppression that's required Mm so i'm I'm certainly not an expert in in the transplantation side of things but certainly some organs require more uh, levels uh, of immunosuppression in order to survive well in the in the trans- in the person that receives the transplant. Yep. Mm, interesting, Rebecca. Um, now you've gone through a very very challenging period with the loss of a family member. Talk us through um, what was happening there back in well pre two thousand nineteen and, and what led to to the death of a family member. Yeah, so it's uh, the family member being my husband. Yep. Um, he got diagnosed with cardiomyopathy when he was in his 20s um, and his health took a significant turn for the worst in 2019, which meant that he spent a lot of that year in and out of hospital. Yep. Um, we actually found out um, not long before he passed away that his um, form of cardiomyopathy is very rare in a genetic form. Right. Um, so he was... Um, on the path to being put on the transplant list to actually be a heart recipient. Right. Um, however, um, when he was in hospital, things took a turn for the worst and he actually became the organ donor. Right. And so do you have a science background at all? No. So what what was that like for you as, as you know, obviously his next of kin? Um, first of all, the being on the recipient list. I mean, how did that... How did that play out? In terms of him receiving, potentially receiving... All the information you were given, what, you know, how did that all... What did that look like? It was... Um, uh, I want to say a slow process, but it wasn't. It, mm. You know, it, it was all within months. Um, it was... The lead-up to it was um, finding, I guess, the right time, you know, yep. for him to... We, as we were told, for him to be well enough to receive one but right. sick enough to actually need one. Yep. Um, but actually what happened in the end was it was very quick. Yep. So, yep. Um, and the turnaround really was, was a wink from him going into hospital with us expecting him to yeah. for them to get him in a stable enough condition to receive a heart transplant at some stage yeah, to right. actually... Yeah, being the other way around. And coming back to Rohit's point there, did did you know his wishes um, with regards to what would happen with his body? We did. Um, we'd obviously spoken about it in terms of him being a heart recipient. Yep, yep. Um, and, you know, yes, he was willing to take, <laughs> yeah, yep. you know, to receive yeah, a yeah. heart. So, therefore, when the time came, there was absolutely no question. Yeah. And what was that? What was that process in terms of, you know, you're in there in the hospital. This is, a, as, as Rod said, this is an incredibly difficult mm. time. And then there's a whole lot of science and a whole lot of clinical information being thrown at you. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you navigate that in those circumstances? It was tricky. Yeah. You know, we had, and remembering that this 
all happened within the space of a week. Yep. Um, we, I got the phone call to say, come in. Thing. Yep. There, there, there's been changes mm-hmm. um, throughout the night. So we came in. Um, we He actually um, ended up having a stroke. Right. Um, so we were told that um, he wasn't going to make it. We had to make the the choice of leaving him on the ventilator or, or not. Right, yep. Um, and as a family, we had that conversation. We decided he had gone through enough. Um, and to take him off the ventilator, but within 20 minutes of making that decision, we were then having a conversation about organ donation. Right, right. And how do you see that now? I mean, a few years have passed. I realise mm. it's a very short amount of time, and it's been a weird time, actually, too, where... Oh, it was I, just before COVID, yeah. yeah. I mean, we can't count those years in the middle. <laughs> no, like, absolutely kind of not. Like so last year was probably our first yeah. real year. Yep, yep, in the real, absolutely. Back in the real world. Yep. Um, I think it made a really traumatic time just that tiny bit easier right. to know that he, you know, we called him throughout the whole process, uh, throughout the whole time, we called him our superhero because he showed superhero strength time and time again through all the um, medical procedures that he had. But actually, in the end, his superhero powers saved other three other people's lives. Yeah, yeah. And that is something, yeah, it doesn't make everything of go course. away, yep. but it certainly makes things a lot easier to kind of come to terms with. Yeah, and and you mentioned at the start that this was a genetic mm. disorder. What what does you have children? I do. So, and what does that mean? Yeah, so um, we actually um, once we found out that it was genetic, both my daughters got tested mm-hmm. straight away through the children's hospital, and we actually got the results. So they each had a fifty fifty chance of inheriting right. the same gene, and we actually found out two days after my husband's funeral that my youngest daughter has got the same right. gene. So what that means going forward is. Um, Knowledge is power, I yep. guess. Um, it's not going... Knowing isn't going to stop her from developing it, um, but it will hopefully mean her not going down the same traumatic path that my husband went through. Mm. Um, but we are potentially looking at heart transplant in the hopefully very, very, very far away. Yeah, yeah. Well, mm. and, you know... 30, 40 years, perhaps, mm. you know, our ability to do this, our ability to even Absolutely. grow heart tissue. I mean, we're seeing some extraordinary science at the moment of people actually growing these tissues mm. in, in little dishes, you know, they're, they're yep. mini organs at the moment, but, you know, it's some really incredible stuff. So, I mean, there's, you know, we wouldn't have even been talking about um, heart transplants four decades ago. Um, so, you know, this is something that, you know, hopefully is, is there for, for your daughter. Absolutely, yeah. You, you must have a lot of conversations about about this with other people. I mean, is this something that you kind of keep away from or, I mean, you Absolutely hear on radio, not. you know, yeah. talking about this? No. Again, as I say, knowledge is power. And mm. if you are not talking about it, it, it it's not... <laughs> I always say, God forbid you're ever put in the position on either end, you know, but it happens. You know, I certainly didn't expect it to happen to my husband at the age of 40 and I was 36 at the time. So if you're not talking about it and you're not sharing that message, then people aren't going to be aware. Yeah. Yeah. Look, Rebecca, it's extraordinarily powerful for you to to come on the show and talk Mm. about this. And I think when it, you know, when you are making the case, I mean, 
what information is given to the donor family? Is, that, is there any connectivity to the lives of the saved or is this all completely confidential? There is a, an important degree of confidentiality, but um, there, at the same time there is some information given in, in terms of how many people are helped and um, you know rough demographic information because really these are... I mean, I'm sitting here listening to Rebecca's story and, mm. and thinking, you know, this is this is why I work in the area because of inspiring people and inspiring stories. You know, because uh, the fact that um, you you can um, go through something like this and think of others is just, you know, is it's just amazing. Yeah. Even though I, you know, there's many families that uh, I talk to in this situation. It's just every time it blows me away. Um, so there is important information that, and you know, Rebecca will will. Uh, Will hopefully confirm this. Got so, she did get some hopefully some information. Yeah. So um, Donate Life were fantastic. They contacted me after to well they always ask first, mm-hmm. you know, yep. um, if I wanted to be updated, which I did. Um, so they were able to um, let me know that three lives were saved. Right. Wow. Um, and again, you know, there is definitely that confidentiality there, but they were able to yeah and talk about demographic and. Um, you know, give a little bit of insight. Um, yeah. 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 Oh, look, I think it's extraordinary. And I know uh, I have a family member who's on dialysis, um, probably at an age where transplant will be challenging um, to achieve. And I cannot imagine what that would do to someone in the earlier years of their life having to, you know, he's, he's really lucky, this individual, because he only has to drive 40 minutes each way for three hour, you know, three and a half hour treatment twice a week. Most people, I think it's it's three um, times a week. I mean, this is this, I mean, what that does to your life is extraordinary, and it's very different to what what your husband went through. But you know, if you you're in that situation in your twenties, waiting for a transplant, like it just um, there must be many people on the list, right? right? There, so. there are. So there there are in terms of kidneys, for example, there's mm. fourteen hundred and fifty people on the on the list waiting wow. for a kidney transplant. So for some of these people it could mean you know going back to work yep. traveling taking their kids to school and yeah. you know, doing all that sort of stuff that we we just take for granted yep. and uh you know and so we should that's the richness of life but yep. but um you know isn't it amazing when others can share share that too yeah indeed all right uh Rebecca, thank you very much for, no, for coming you. in. It's an absolute pleasure to hear your story and and to you know to hear how much good that your you know departed husband has done um, with with that that donation that you made is extraordinary. So um, I guess you'll never really know what those lives are doing, but yeah, you know I think it's fair to imagine that you know they're rich and yep. and doing a lot. So you know, well done thank um, you. for that. It's amazing. So thanks for coming in today. We're going to keep you rehead in the studio because we're going to have a, a donor, a, sorry, a donee, a donor donation recipient. recipient. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get that right um, in the studio in just a few moments. Three, triple. Listening to Einstein and GoGo, we're talking about organ donations at the moment on the show, and we still have Dr. Rohit De Costa, who is the Donate Life Victoria spokesman in the studio, also an intensive care specialist at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, and we have a organ recipient in the studio now, Jessica Chappell. Jess, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Now, give us a bit of an idea of what happened in your situation. You had autoimmune hepatitis. When did yes. this come up? Well, um, it popped up 
uh, after the birth of my uh, daughter, Meadow. So back in 2010, uh, I had a relatively straightforward pregnancy uh, and it wasn't until uh, a couple of months after her birth uh, that I started to feel quite unwell. Uh, And it was actually the day of Meadow's christening, uh, hmm. about 12 weeks right. in, into her life. And um, one of my relatives, my aunt, uh, is a was the director of nursing at Geelong Hospital and she took one look at me and said, you need to go to emergency, something's very wrong. And unbeknownst to me, uh, I had... Um, was presenting with severe jaundice, uh, which is uh, one of the um, symptoms of liver failure. Right, so yellowing in the eyes and skin. Yep. Yep. Yep, fluorescent yellow. Yep, yep. Yep. And so at that point, I mean, what's the the pathway with liver failure? I mean, livers regenerate to some degree. Is that right, the organ, I think? It's actually a very um, challenging... Uh, organ to heal itself. So um, once uh, inflammation has reached a stage of of scarring, mm-hmm. uh, the terminology is actually marbling. And it's it's um, if you picture uh, in your mind a liver in a healthy form is pink and soft and luscious and spongy, mm-hmm. and as it scars um, due to inflammation and damage, it um, turns into a really hard, uh, grey, marbled form. So it, it essentially turns to stone right, uh, and right. stops working. Right. So at this point, you're in a situation where basically, you know, there's no... Rohit, correct me if I'm wrong here, there's no dialysis version for livers. This is for kidneys. Not not really. Not that's very effective, no. Right. So basically, you, you're at that point, you need, a, you need a new liver or a replacement liver. Yep. Yep. So, just what happened next? Well, uh, I was very fortunate that the day I went to emergency, the uh, gastroenterologist uh, registrar on call uh, actually spe- specialised in autoimmune conditions right. and on site diagnosed me, um, said, I think I know what you have and I'm going to start treatment because what you have is life threatening. Mm-hmm. And if I don't, if I wait to find out for the test results, you may not survive. Wow. Uh, and so we learned very quickly with a 12-week-old newborn baby and my husband and I realised that we were really facing potentially the end of my life. Mm. And that treatment, though, wasn't repairing your, your liver, just dealing with the autoimmune issue. Yes. So the autoimmune condition... Um, autoimmune hepatitis is like your body setting itself on fire. It essentially um, is is a raging inflammation and burning the healthy cells and turning them into stone. And so the treatment at that time in 2010 was to arrest the inflammation, to stop it in its tracks and to try and salvage whatever there was left of my liver. Right. And presumably, though, at that point, there wasn't enough and you needed a transplant. Well, there was just enough to keep me uh, managed by medication for a period of six or seven years. And then uh, towards the end of 2018, uh, my health um, had degraded to a point where um, I was in intensive care uh, and 
um, quite quickly um, I was transferred to the care of the Austin Hospital right. and the liver transplant unit yep. where we had the conversation that it was really um, to start working towards um, being well enough to be considered to be on the transplant list yeah. to be considered for organ donation. Rohit, how broad is that range? We've, we've heard I heard this from Rebecca earlier with her um, her deceased husband as well that you have to be in, you have to be well enough. But these people are there because they're, they're critically ill. How do you get them in that range where they can, you know, receive an organ? Yeah, again, uh, with the caveat that I don't really mm. work on the transplantation side of things, but in principle, you want someone to be able to benefit and survive that the you know the the procedure itself yep. as well as the aftermath of the procedure. So you need a certain degree of help, but also they obviously need to be unwell enough to require the transplant so there, there is a uh, a sweet spot if you like and it's uh and it varies depending on the organ yeah well jess you were obviously luckily in the sweet spot you so you managed to how long did you wait for the for the liver at that point i waited uh 14 months yep. um a, a little longer um than usual and that was due to the impact of um the pandemic yep. um because the the news isn't in on uh, being able to transplant organs from people that have right. suffered um, from COVID. And so um, at that time, uh, organ donation really um, condensed. Yep. Uh, the donor pool shrank. Uh, and as a result, my wait was a little longer than usual. Right. So... Now, the amazing guys out at, guys and girls, people, everyone out at the Austin, the extraordinary team out there, I mean, they do this a lot, um, gave you a new liver. What was that What was that process like? I mean, getting a, an, you've had an organ ripped out that wasn't working that well anyway. Someone's given you an organ that your body would presumably reject partly without proper medication. What was Talk us through what that was like. Well... In the lead up to receiving the phone call um, to say that there was a donor mm. organ available, uh, there's a whole team. There are hundreds and hundreds of uh, medical professionals that have contributed to me being alive today yep. to be able to talk to you. Uh, and that in the lead up to a transplant, there's a lot of uh, care involved from um, Nutrition from physiotherapy, building up, um, building up body fat and and muscle strength to be able to survive the surgery, and there's a whole lot of welfare and psychological care that's mm. involved because, in order to um, be an organ donor recipient. Uh, you make several commitments. You commit to live a life that's free of toxins. Um, you yep. agree um, that um, you'll protect the anonymity of your donor and you'll also um, are highly aware of the fact uh, that in order for you to live, that someone else somewhere tragically has passed away. And yep. so there's a whole lot of psychological work and support around the transition to actually get to the day where you're presenting right. to the hospital um, and hopefully um, to ensure that the surgeons say, yes, we're, we're ready to go for surgery. Yeah. But that's great to hear that. I was, I've was i not heard that before in interviews we've done with regards to all those other elements. And, and you know, I think often allied health has is, is not spoken about as much as it needs to be in terms of recovery and in terms of people's strength and ability to, to do so. Um, the nursing teams, the psychological support teams and so forth, obviously, are critical. So how, how are you now, a few years out? 
Look, uh, it's been just over 12 months, so my transplant was last February. And look, I have to say, touch wood, it's been a very straightforward recovery for me and my family. Um, And that's largely to the wonderful effort uh, and support provided post-transplant by the Austin Transplant Unit. Mm. Um, I actually, and I often refer to them as an extension of my family these days, uh, because Becoming an organ donor recipient, you've almost signed a moral obligation with one another that I'll take care of the liver and in exchange they'll take care of me for the rest of my life. Uh, And I'm very, very pleased to uh, be able to live my life fully. I've returned to full-time work um, and I've really resumed a life um, that I hadn't recognised since before the birth of Meadow. Um, I've been unwell mm, for 13 mm, years and yeah. I hadn't really recognised how unwell my illness had made me until I woke up in intensive care after yep. the transplant. Even then, after eight and a half hours of surgery, I already felt 150% better. God, that's extraordinary, isn't yeah. it, to hear that? Because I think anyone out there who's had any sort of even minor surgery, you feel pretty crappy after uh, any surgery. And to hear that you, you felt so much better, there must be a grieving period for the period of life you've you've, you've essentially missed out on. Um, we're not talking about a small space of 10 years or so. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I do think back and, you know, I wonder about the children I haven't been able to have mm. um, having to stop because... It would have been life-threatening yeah. to carry on with further pregnancies. But I also... I, I'm very optimistic about the future. Um, it was a difficult period of time in my life, but I'm sure it will inform an even richer yep. future yep. in my life. It's definitely changed not just the way I am with my family and my loved ones, but I approach everything differently yeah. in life. Yeah. I, I've... I work with an organisation that that makes a meaningful difference and contribution to community. Um, I love uh, my family and friends and I tell them often yep. and honestly how much I care for them. Um, and so I really uh, don't reflect too much on where I've come from, but I'm really focused on where I'm going. Yeah. Now, look, that's a, it's a fantastic way that to sort of finish this discussion in a sense. And, we, you know, we heard from Rebecca and, and wondering, you know, where, where that, that uh, gift has gone. And, and hearing that, you know, you're one of those types of people who these gifts are going to is extraordinary. I think, um, Rohit, the, the take-home message is not just to sign up to be an organ donor if you're willing, but to have detailed conversations with your family as well, because both need to be true. Is that right, in Australia? Um, yeah, absolutely. So families are always asked because it can be, you know, who knows what the circumstances mm. are at the time of death and whether someone's changed their minds and all those sorts of other things. So families always ask to confirm that decision. So if you've made it clear to your family and your loved ones that you want to be a donor, um, they're going to support that decision. Yep, no, it's good. Jessica Chappell, thanks so much for coming in and speaking to us today and we hope that you have a very healthy, long life and I'm sure you're going to treat that life a lot better than the rest of us in the studio (laughs) who haven't gone through such an extraordinary experience. But um, good luck and thanks for being such an amazing advocate for donating uh, organs. Great, thanks so much. And Rohit, thanks so much for for you coming in as well and um, I suppose people can just Google 
organ donations, where, where do they go the, to sign up? The best way is to go to our website, Donate Life. So that's one word, donatelife.gov.au. And there's a link there to sign up and a lot more information about organ and tissue donation as well. Excellent. Folks, the uh, the science behind organ donations is changing fairly rapidly. I know having done the show now for about 30 years, um, the stories we hear now are completely different to the ones that I was hearing when we started. So please, if you are not registered and haven't had that conversation with your family, uh, take the opportunity to do so. Three, triple, People are hugging in the studio here um, because we're, we're talking. We're talking about some difficult stuff today. And, and Laura, you, you benefit a lot from the donation of tissues and so forth in your research labs. Yeah, absolutely. So we collaborate with Donate Life and the transplantation team at the Austin, um, and use parts of organs for um, scientific research for immunology. Mm. I mean, the blood just doesn't represent what's actually going on when you're looking at different immune mm. cells. And so we've learn heaps and bounds like in fundamental discovery research from looking yeah. at you know what's going on in healthy human tissues which you don't get access to yeah and your stuff's around the skin right a lot of your your work's been around the skin so that's something that's yeah blood's not going to give you the answer no no it's no it's not and but we also do look in the um the the liver and kidney and donors at organs that um, aren't deemed viable for transplantation. We're able to take sections of those organs and actually look at what's going on inside. And mm. um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely critical for fundamental research as well. Yeah. So interesting. Can we change topic completely? Yes, and let's go, go in a different uh, sort of physical sciences direction. Well, uh, only if it's on something really traumatic like earthquakes, Shane. Well, then we're we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're in the page. right place. So earthquake prediction. You know, we've we've heard this uh, story many many times. You know, how can we predict earthquakes? And there's been a whole lot of things around the geochemistry of groundwater that changes potentially in some cases, um, electromagnetic effects, some in the atmosphere around other areas. I think there's a there's a whole school of thought out there that if you just put enough enough animals around, they'll let you know um, that it's coming. But bum bum, you know, none of these things have planned out to be successful in you know. Predicting really, earthquakes. I have to give away my earthquake prediction dog now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Has that been working out for you? Um, <laughs> he does start whining really loudly. <laughs> yeah, but is that just because you haven't fed him or is that... No, because he wants attention. <laughs> oh, he wants attention, yeah. Okay, so um, look, uh, you know, my, my, my wife just passed her citizenship test, boom-boom, um, and for a while there, there was a seemed to be a correlation between every test she had and the earthquakes that were happening in Melbourne. <laughs> And I spoke to Dean Innes, you know, who we had on the show a few yeah, weeks back. it was uh, amazing. You know, earthquake expert. And she said to me, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> It's not your wife's fault. What a letdown. So, yeah, I yeah. remember <laughs> hearing how many earthquakes are actually are happening. Yeah, and it was so way yeah, higher yeah, huge than we number, thought. Huge number. So it's really cool stuff. Now, here's, here's the crux of it. Late Friday night, I'm sitting there watching... Uh, you know, back episodes was there an of, earthquake? of uh, no, no, I was watching Stranger Things. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I hadn't seen season three or four. Mental so anyway, earthquake. We're watching this, and uh, and then I get this alert. You know, a DM from Dean Ennis, who we had on the show, yeah. sending me this article about earthquake prediction. I'm like, what is going on? You know, so I'm watching Stranger Things. I'm reading some science. This is what happens to me because I got a, you know, something wrong with me, but I, it happens. And we found out that there is some new work that's come out that looks like you might be able to pick things up about two hours prior to a major earthquake. Now, let me just quickly talk you through how they did this research. Um, they were looking to see whether there was any sort of signal in the sort of few hours or 48 hours before 
any earthquakes. Now, if you look at individual earthquakes, there's a couple where people have seen some stuff because, you know, the plates are starting to, the interaction's starting to, on either side of the fault, happen, and you can pick a few things up, but, but it's not universal. So you can't use that. You know, it's only happened a few times. And so what this group did is they said, okay, let's have a look at a whole lot of earthquakes. Let's grab all the data. And so they grabbed about 90 magnitude 7 quakes, and they stacked all the data together and looked to see if there was any signal in the hours beforehand. And what they found is that there is. So they found in a two-hour window prior to these quakes, there was a very small, subtle signal indicating that something was about to happen. Now, here's the crunch, right? The only reason they could see this signal is because they stacked them all together. So, you know, that's sort of coming out of the noise at that point. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. way to think about this, folks, is if you, if you stack noise on top of itself, you get noise. But if there's a little signal in there somewhere, that adds up differently to the way the noise kind of cancels itself out, whereas the signal will add up and get bigger and bigger and bigger as you stack it. And in this case, they found that there was a signal that they could detect. Problem is, it doesn't work for individual earthquakes at this point. Damn, because I was going to ask. It was like two hours. That gives you enough yeah, time to switch yeah. important things I know, off. Right? Well, in fact, <laughs> Leave. in fact, five minutes yeah. would give you yeah, enough time to Absolutely. switch off gas Anything. mains, etc. Yeah. Get out of um, get out certain of buildings, buildings, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. etc. So, you know, stabilize patients who are in hospitals, in critical yeah. care, all sorts of things. Um, but the problem is here is that the moment, at the moment, it looks like um, they need to be able to measure a large number. Um, to do it. But what does this tell us? The data science is um, powerful. Yeah, but it also tells us that there is something going on prior. Mm -hmm. So we don't yet have the capability to detect it, but it's there. And if we if we stack enough of this data together, we can see it. Yeah. So now there's some controversy around it. You know, uh, people saying, "Oh, did you correct for this? Did you correct for that?" And and actually, they did some really interesting aspects around that to make sure that the data was was legit. But imagine that, you know, we're, we're at the forefront of what potentially could be detection capabilities. Amazing. Yeah. Like technology now, in the future will definitely like yeah, be more sensitive and absolutely. eventually you'll be able to detect that and save so many lives. Now, problem is, of course, you've got to be right. You, know, you, can't, you, you can't be... You Next can't, conspiracy theory is coming well, along nicely. You know, it's hard, isn't it? You've got to, you know, you can't evacuate towns unless you've got a reasonable chance of being correct here. So there's a lot of work ahead of them. But the principle is there. So there is something happening. And if they can see a signal somewhere, it means it exists. And that's kind of cool. So hence Dean Ninas and I exchanging DMs at... Nine o'clock at night on a Friday. Distracting you from Stranger Things, that's huge. Oh, I, know. No, I was still watching Stranger Things. I was reading, reading watching Baltimore. If it's the latest yeah, so. season, it's yeah. not much distraction anyway. What? What? <laughs> Controversial. Jeez, that's know, Unpopular opinion. What? Well, outrageous. I'm loving the current <laughs> yeah. season. Uh, anyway, uh, Dr. Laura, good to have you in the studio. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Dr. Susie, good to have you back as Always well. Always a pleasure. Folks, uh, in a moment, we're going to hand over to the team from Eat It, but we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We've, we've run a little bit uh, into the medical space this week, but, uh, and we will next week too, I'm afraid. But uh, I am, you know, think these are really important uh, discussions, and the Donate Life group contacted me about uh, talking more about organ donations. And haven't done it in about a decade. So I thought it was probably time that we, we talked through. And a huge thank you to our two guests today, uh, both a member of a donor family and a recipient. And our third guest, is Laura's pointing a third finger at me, <laughs> uh, from Donate Life Victoria, uh, which is just um, an awesome organisation. 
We only have a few weeks until the Radiothon, which is pretty exciting. So that's all coming up. We've got a whole lot of good science coming up for you in the coming weeks. But until then, uh, have a wonderful Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening. And we'll hand you over in a moment to the team from EBIT. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.